0: Well, good morning to all of you. You're probably familiar with Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft Corporation. The company he founded rose to dominate the personal computer operating system market with the product we now know as Windows. His vision and success led to the prosperity of many others who joined him. After his company went public in 1986, Bill Gates' success had created three billionaires and an estimated 12,000 millionaires among Microsoft employees. A 1992 New York Times article described the phenomenon. Virtually overnight, The pecking order of the wealth in the Pacific Northwest has been turned upside down. It continues. The Microsoft millionaires are unlike any in the world. Not only are many under the age of 30, the vast majority are not executives or lawyers, but rather software writers with technical backgrounds. The article says many became millionaires simply because they'd been employed at Microsoft for five years. And what do these people want to do with their lives? The article says, the people at Microsoft want to change the world. They tend to be dreamers with visions for the advancement of technology to fulfill before they slow down. But that's the problem with humans that want to change the world, right? Eventually, they slow down. Even if they enjoy great financial prosperity, able to do all the things that they want to do, they eventually slow down. In fact, that's putting it nicely, isn't it? To put it more bluntly, they all die. Death is the problem. That kind of glory is temporary. What people really need is salvation. That's something Bill Gates, with all his resources, can't give. But God, God does have the resources, and he does provide salvation. He's written a story, and he's spoken to us about it. That's set forth in the first few verses of Hebrews. This speaking God has spoken to us in these last days by his son. So we need to listen. And we're warned to pay much closer attention at the beginning of chapter 2. How can we escape God's justice if we neglect so great a salvation? We can. And who are the people who heed this warning? Who are they? And pay attention to what God has spoken Through his son. That's what we're going to consider this morning. So please turn to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. That's page 1001 in the Bibles underneath the seat in front of you. We are going to consider the founder of this salvation, Jesus Christ. We are also going to look at the sharers in this salvation. The many sons and daughters who will be brought to glory. And we're going to look at the bond between the founder and his people, people he's delivered from death. They're all family members with one father. Hebrews 2.5 For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering." For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So after a brief warning in the first four verses of chapter 2, the author of Hebrews picks up the same argument that he left off with at the end of chapter 1. Look at 1.13, where it says, Are they, the angels, is they, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So he's emphasizing that angels serve the church. That is the one new humanity that's inheriting salvation through its founder, Jesus Christ. Now in chapter 2, verses 5 and 16, as bookends, help us see the flow of the argument as it continues. They underscore how this plan of salvation is about humanity, not angels. The angels are there to serve God's plan, but the focus is on what God has destined for humanity and his commitment to helping humanity accomplish his purpose for them. The first bookend, verse 5, says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. The other bookend is verse 16, which says, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So that sets us up for a closer look at what God has destined for humanity. And being rich in his knowledge, the Old Testament, the author of Hebrews goes right to Psalm 8. So I'm on number one and point A in your outline, world subjected to humanity. So as we go there, don't be thrown off by how he introduces the quotation from Psalm 8. He says in verse 6, it has been testified somewhere. You know, he's not being casual or even cavalier in this reference. He's simply stressing that God has spoken. So the human author isn't important. Instead, he wants us to hear and understand this as God's word to us. Now, God's purpose for humanity is sandwiched in the middle of a curiosity that the psalmist ponders. What is that purpose? Do you see it at the end of verse 7? It says, You have crowned him, man, with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. That is what God intended for humanity. It's a reflection on Genesis 1.26. Then God said, Let man make, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the creeping, thring, cre- creeping things that, that creep on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God subjected the world to the rule of humanity under his authority. Then the author of Hebrews adds his own comment. He wants us to see the scope of this purpose for humanity. It's huge. He says at the end of verse 8, now putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. How big is this inheritance received from God? It includes everything in creation. So God... Left nothing outside. It means everything was subject to his control. That's staggering. You may be reeling just thinking about it. But consider what Paul said in Romans 8.32. Paul said, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him also graciously Give us all things. Does all things really mean all things? I think it does. I'll leave you to think about that this afternoon. But let's return to the argument. The reason that God's glorious purpose for humanity is so staggering is that it doesn't look that way now we can't really see what's inside the sandwich. We see what's on the outside. That's something that the psalmist also wondered about. Look at the last part of verse 6. It says, What is man, that you are mindful of him, or the son of man, that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. And again, the author of Hebrews adds his own commentary. He says, At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So, it's like promising your kids that following a trip to the store, they're going to get ice cream. When you're a kid, that trip to the store seems like it takes forever. You can't imagine that it's ever going to end. The present circumstances seem to go on. And on. So you tell your kids to be patient, and they'll get ice cream if they just wait a little while. What do phrases like a little while and at present convey? They give us a sense that something's temporary. At present, it may not look like what you're expecting, so you have to wait for it. Now we know from Genesis 3 that sin entered the world through Adam. God subjected the world to the rule of humanity under his authority, but humanity rejected God's authority. The creature rejected the creator. Under such circumstances, should God even then care about humanity? Is our human destiny now to be demoted to something less than the image of God? Someone might wonder these things. So because of sin, it became hard to see God's purpose in it all. But it was never God's end game to have his purpose thwarted by human disobedience. And he's communicated clearly to us that his plan, his plan still stands. We just have a hearing problem and a seeing problem. It's really an all-pervasive problem because at its core it's a sin problem. Yet God has given us someone who clarifies all this. And not only that, but handles our sin problem. Look with me at verse 9. But we see him who was for a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus is the one who came to fulfill God's purpose for humanity. He became human himself, made a little lower than the angels for a little while. He was crowned with glory and honor, achieved by him alone through his sinless life and his death on a cross. His death atoned for the new humanity created in him, clearly demonstrating the grace of God to all mankind. Do you see Jesus? It may not be clear when we observe the world around us at the present time, but God's Word can make it clear to you this morning. Do you know the story of Amelia Earhart? She was a daring young pilot who attempted to become the first woman to fly completely around the world in 1937. But this attempt ended tragically when she disappeared somewhere over the Pacific Ocean on one of the last legs of her flight. Apparently, she and her navigator had difficulty with the communication equipment and their ability to fly visually. She was a great pilot, but she lost sight of her destination, the Howland Islands, where she was trying to land. Yet pilots today, nearly a century later, make that same trip all the time without any trouble at all. Why? Superior navigation instruments. They use better equipment, which enables them to easily see their destination. Similarly, God gives us superior navigation for our human destiny in this world. A perfect example is Psalm 8. And the author of Hebrews makes sure we see it and understand the significance. We need God's greater message to be able to navigate and see our destination. And that message has come to us clearly in these last days through God's own Son. So the first man, Adam, sinned and humanity failed. So we needed another founder, someone who could save us and help us achieve God's destiny for us. But also someone who is one of us, not someone like the angels. Someone human. God, yes, but fully human. And we can see him, namely Jesus. The founder of our salvation is Jesus. That's by God's design. Now look at point B in your outline, founder made human. Verse 10, For it was fitting that he who, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should, be, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Several outstanding commentator, commentators suggest that founder is a good translation here. But pioneer might be even better. Because the sense here is not simply starting something or setting an example. It's more than that. Jesus made a way for us. We couldn't even get started, let alone follow him, unless he made the way possible. That's why Jesus is the way. Salvation is found in a person, Jesus. There are three things I want you to notice in this verse. First, it was fitting, fitting. Why does he say that? Because he realizes this may not make sense at first. It doesn't fit our observations. So he proves it from Scripture. When we look at the previous verse, verse 9, don't we ask ourselves, why? Why did God have to be made lower than the angels? Why did the God-man have to suffer death? Why does a sacrificial death demonstrate God's graciousness towards humanity? The argument he's making begins those answers. He'll show how they fit. We'll hear it from the perspective of God's word and God's plan for humanity. And we're just getting started. It'll take several chapters to work it out. But... He wants us to know now that it fits. It's right. This is what God intended all along. And it should provoke thought, too. What kind of a God, for whom and by whom all things exist, humbles himself, dies a voluntary human death after living a perfect life, and acts graciously towards God? Rebellious people, bringing many to glory. The second thing to notice is that he was perfect. But this perfection came through suffering. That's unexpected. Why should God have to suffer as a human? He's setting up his argument about Jesus as our great high priest. He'll unpack that later in the book, but he plants the idea now. It's fitting that Jesus should be made perfect through suffering. Then in verse 17, he calls Jesus a high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So the idea is introduced here, but it'll be unpacked later. The third thing to notice here is that Jesus brings others with him. He's bringing many sons and daughters to glory. But is that all of humanity? No. Jesus saves humanity, but he doesn't save each and every human. That's why he says many. It's many that are brought to glory here. That defines what he meant in verse 9 when he said Jesus tasted death for everyone. That everyone refers to his people, the people Jesus is saving. And if that isn't clear, look at verse 16 again. Who is he helping? It's the offspring of Abraham. It's the elect people. They're the ones to whom the promise is given. So they're the inheritors of all things in Jesus. Now this is so important for us to understand this morning. Jesus was made lower than the angels. Jesus has been crowned with glory and honor because of suffering and death. And by the grace of God, Jesus tasted death for everyone who shares in the salvation that he's founded, that he's pioneered but he's also taking people with him. He shares this salvation with a people. Who are these people who share this salvation? What do they do? What is their relationship to God? Well, that's number two in the outline, shares in salvation. The next few verses tell us he's gathering a people. Point A. Let's read Hebrews 2, 11 through 13. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have, notice, one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Verse 12, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. There's a lot going on here. But why do I say that he's gathering a people? It starts in verse 11. There's he who sanctifies, Jesus, and those who are sanctified, Jesus' people. They're called his brothers and sisters, once in verse 11 and again in verse 12. And in verse 12, they're gathered in a congregation of people then in verse 13 this congregation of people these brothers and sisters in Jesus are called children. So their children God the Father has given to Jesus. Then go back to verse 11. Who's the source of both? The sanctifier and the sanctified? It's God the Father. It's God the Father. He's the source of salvation. He designed it, and the Son accomplished it for God's people. Do you see that? The people, the Father gave him. So if Jesus and his people have one Father, isn't it fitting that they're called brothers and sisters? Doesn't it make sense that Jesus isn't ashamed of them. Instead, he's pleased with them. They have peace. So who is Jesus ashamed of? It's not the people in Hebrews 2. It's the people Jesus described in Mark 8.38. For whoever is ashamed of me, Jesus says, and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory, the glory of his Father, with the holy angels. But these people in Hebrews 2 are different. Jesus is not ashamed of them. Why? Because they're sharers in salvation. How about the Old Testament references in these verses? Where are they coming from? Well, the first is Psalm 22. Now raise your hand if you've heard it before. Are you ready? Psalm 22, it starts, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You heard that before? Where is that from? Of course. Jesus said that from the cross, right? And the first 21 verses of that psalm describe the suffering and death that Jesus died. So it makes total sense that Jesus pointed to the beginning of that psalm while dying on the cross. But at verse 22 of that psalm, the psalm's whole direction changes. It says... I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. That's what Hebrews 2.12 is quoting. The rest of that psalm is about the joy of salvation, what comes after the suffering. So what did Jesus' death accomplish? Salvation for his people. And Hebrews is really bringing in the whole psalm to make that argument. Then he refers to Isaiah 8. This is a passage which describes how Judah is surrounded by her enemies. So the people are in turmoil, but Isaiah, rejected by his people, hopes in the Lord and waits for his promise. Isaiah becomes what commentators call a rallying point for faith and provides an interesting parallel to Jesus. However, the point here is to describe the relationship that these people have to God after Jesus, the founder of their salvation, pioneers the way for them. What is the nature of the relationship with God for these people? Well, let's observe the activity that's involved in verses 11 through 13. What does sharing in salvation look like? Notice that Jesus leads the people in this gathering, this congregation. He leads them. What are they doing? They're doing things that define what it means to be a sharer in salvation. Jesus speaks to them of God, so they become speakers about God. Jesus sings praise to God, so they praise God. Jesus puts his trust in God, so they learn to trust God. And Jesus tells them their children given to them, given to him by God. So they learn what it's like to be completely given over to God. Do you ever wonder what it might feel like to be completely given over to God? Do you feel like that now? Is that an exciting thought for you? Or is it scary? What might be scaring you is the loss of control. But isn't it better to give yourself into the hands of God? than the hands of men. Hebrews is for people who are suffering persecution at the hands of men. Desperate people who need help. And Hebrews is a sermon to God's children, telling them that they have somewhere to turn. So if that's you... Place yourself completely, completely in the hands of your reliable Savior. And be grateful for the difficulties that reveal your need for His help. Now, point B in your outline making them children. Doesn't that sound good? The people God gave to Jesus aren't just forgiven. They aren't merely tagging along for the ride. They aren't strays that God takes in. They're far more than that. What does Jesus' life and death accomplish? It makes rebels against God into children of God. That's the true power of the propitiation that Jesus made for the sins of the people. When this power is granted to people, it creates the strongest of relationships. Adoption into the family of God. Look at Hebrews 2.14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So the author is drawing a conclusion here about why Jesus became a man, became human. Because... The children the Father gave him are human. They forfeited their glorious position because of sin, but God was committed to humanity achieving its destiny. So Jesus partook of humanity to achieve that destiny for them and share it with them as children of the Father. How is that accomplished? Not only by Jesus becoming human, but by defeating the enemy of humanity. Jesus accomplished that by his death. Through death, he destroyed the devil, the one who has the power of death. That defeat freed his people from the power of death and their bondage to sin. So as God broke the bonds of slavery in Egypt for Israel, so he delivered us from bondage through the perfect humanity of Jesus Christ. And because the bonds of slavery are now broken, there's a new bond that's formed in Jesus. It's unbreakable, indestructible. It's a family bond. We become God's children. And Jesus becomes our high priest. He's acted on our behalf, and he'll continue to act On our behalf, we belong to Jesus and we share in the destiny that he's accomplished for us. Our third and final point in the outline addresses the bond between the one who sanctifies and those being sanctified. And point A is about help from God help from God, look once more at verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. This is the other bookend to the section that started in verse 5. What's he driving at? He's saying that if you're human, you have the opportunity to receive god's help now what do you typically do when someone offers you help do you say no thanks no thanks i got this is that because you only trust yourself and You're concerned that another pair of hands might just mess things up, get in your way? Or are you a person that takes all the help you can get, but you're happy to dump all your problems in someone else's lap and run the other way? Perhaps you're just used to weak helpers and figure help isn't worth the hassle. But, is that what help from God is like? I hope you've already seen the difference this morning. When we read of help from God in Scripture, we should think of it as something strong. God's help is the ultimate strength for humanity. We can see this in Psalm 46. Let me read it to you. Close your eyes and listen and think, is this the kind of help that you want from God? Is it? I'll read. You close your eyes. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Do you, want, do you want the destiny that God has planned for humanity? Do you want that? That's a destiny that we saw in Psalm 8. And we've now heard about in Psalm 46. 46. Maybe that's not you. You'd rather go for things like personal power, prestige, money, lust, etc. You know the list. And you probably don't think it's quite that bad. But do you love your sin more than you love Jesus? Is the idea of belonging to Jesus... Forever, not that appealing to you. Is the effort involved in being sanctified by the one who sanctifies Jesus, something you'd rather avoid? There's only one source of salvation, and that's from God. If that's not your source you're not going to get any help. Oh, you'll enjoy God's common grace for all humanity, but not the grace that leads to salvation. But if you want God's plan to be your destiny, then God will help you. Trust him. Love him. Serve him. Enjoy him. Follow him, no matter what it costs. You can share in the promises that he gave to Abraham. You can become one of Abraham's offspring, one of the elect, the child of God. Place your faith in the work of Jesus Christ and his atoning death on the cross. Make Jesus your refuge, and your strength, a very present help in trouble. If you do, you will receive his help. You'll no longer live in fear of death because Jesus has overcome death. And all of the people that Jesus has redeemed by his blood are overcomers too because of him. We'll conclude with point B, solidarity with humanity. And this is truly an amazing conclusion. Verse 17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. God's declared his solidarity with humanity. His purpose? To become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Maybe you don't think you deserve that kind of mercy from God. No one does. But this is what God has revealed to us in His Word. He saves sinners. He's merciful. Maybe you think you could never be faithful to God if you start following Him, so why bother? But you underestimate the power of God to sanctify your life through the life and death of the one who sanctifies, Jesus Christ. You underestimate that. If you belong to Him, He's faithful to do that good work in you as you walk in newness of life. Let's not forget Jesus was human in every respect, yet without sin. That means he suffered when tempted. He suffered for his people. And the book of Hebrews was written to suffering people. We don't look for suffering. I don't think any of us do. But when suffering comes, we need to understand its value for the Christian life. When we share, even in some small way, in the sufferings of Jesus Christ, this is a means by which we can know the power of his resurrection in our lives. So we need to suffer well when suffering comes. And verse 18 concludes, with a great comfort for us as believers, Jesus is able to help us when we're being tempted. So resist temptation. Flee temptation. Don't indulge it. Jesus has freed you from your bondage to sin. And he understands temptation. He intercedes with God for you. He's sufficient for your needs. So live your life like a child of God. Pay attention. Don't drift away. Don't neglect this great salvation. Look to Jesus. He will bring you to glory. So there's only one source of salvation the founder of that salvation, changed the world forever. And he'll come back and fulfill all that he promised. Don't settle for advanced technology and a million dollars and a few decades to spend it before you grow old. Don't settle for that. Our salvation in Jesus Christ is so much greater than that. What comes after the warning in Hebrews 2 describes our destiny. True deliverance from death that will last forever is God's child that should grab your attention, should motivate you to cling to Jesus with all you got. And it should motivate you to cherish the inheritance that you have in him. So let's pray. Father, we are so glad that you are the source of such a great salvation, that we people who are in need of sanctification have a sanctifier, Jesus, the founder of our salvation. And Lord, we praise you that we share in that salvation and that there is an unbreakable, unbreakable bond between us and our Savior, our great high priest. And we pray that we would just understand that bond and take great confidence in the security we have uh, in your Holy Spirit given to us so that we walk in newness of life, uh, trusting in you. Help us to trust in you this morning, Lord. Help us to cherish this great salvation. Help us to walk in newness of life. Help us to walk as children of God. In Christ's name we pray, amen.